You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. We have something kind of exciting to share. We are hosting a virtual meet and greet on February 7th, starting at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tickets are $15, and you can purchase one by clicking the Buy Me a Coffee link in our Instagram bio or, of course, in the show notes. Make sure to put the amount of $15 in when you go to purchase the coffee. And in the message portion of the purchase, make sure you put in your Instagram handle or somewhere we can send the link to the Zoom event. And make sure you include meet and greet ticket in the body of that message as well. Make sure you press submit, and we will make sure to message you prior to the event. We absolutely cannot wait to meet those of you who are able to make it. Now let's get on with the episode. Today's case is a listener request. We actually had quite a few listeners request this to us. We love your requests. Keep them coming. We unfortunately didn't get a chance to get all of the names grouped together, but we want to say a big thank you to our first requester, Kylan, and thank you to all of the rest of you who also requested this. We see you, we heard you, and without further ado, here is Natalie. Dylan Redwine, a name so many of you are familiar with, but do you really know what happened? He vanished from his father's hilltop home less than 24 hours after he arrived for a court-ordered visit, and nobody would ever see him alive again. This led to a number of questions in the community and throughout the nation as a whole. At the top of that list were two questions. Did he leave on his own accord or was foul play involved? It took almost 10 years for these questions to get their answers, but it's safe to say we finally have them. This is the story of Dylan Redwine. Mark and Elaine Redwine completed their family when their youngest son, Dylan Nicholas Redwine, was born on February 6, 1999. This blonde-haired, blue-eyed cutie joined three older brothers, two of which were from Mark's first marriage, Mark, Allen, and Brandon. And the third was Elaine and Mark's other son, Corey Redwine, who's about five years older than Dylan. Now, growing up, Dylan was a typical, energetic little boy 
who was always laughing and playing video games and never once passed up an opportunity to have a slice of pizza. And who can blame him? The kids got taste. Dylan spent the majority of his childhood with his mom because his dad, Mark, worked as a long-distance trucker. Mark's trucking schedule coupled with Elaine's alleged alcohol abuse led to a number of marital problems between Mark and Elaine. Unfortunately, the couple eventually split after 18 years together, and things were far from amicable. In fact, things got nasty quickly, especially when it came to custody over their two underage sons. Because of Corey and Dylan's ages at the time of their parents' custody battle, you know, old enough to have a preference, the judge decided to let the kids decide for themselves who'd they end up living with. But at this point, Dylan and Corey had grown to resent their father. Some sources say that the boys felt this way because of how Mark treated Elaine during the divorce. However, other sources go into another much darker explanation as to why the boys felt the way they did. Paige, for you and our listeners to understand this, we need to talk about a 2011 road trip that the Red Wine brothers, Corey and Dylan, took with their father. The details about where they went really don't matter. What's important is that one night while Mark slept, Corey and Dylan accidentally discovered disturbing images of their father on his computer. I know we have a trigger warning at the top of the episode for all of our cases, but this is a scat trigger warning. If that's something that's going to upset you, go ahead and skip ahead about 30 seconds as I describe these pictures for our listeners. The photos depict Mark wearing a red lacy triangle bra with crudely done makeup. He has a crazed look on his face with chunks of human excrement smeared on his cheeks. Other images in the collection show Mark eating human excrement out of a filled diaper, while another shows him wearing a diaper. The boys didn't confront Mark about the photos, at least at the time of their discovery. However, Corey saved the images on his phone by taking a picture of them with his camera phone. The discovery of the photos led to a slow decline in the way that Dylan saw his father and their overall closeness. And ultimately, it's believed that they ruined Dylan's relationship and the image he had of his father as a whole. Now back to the Red Wine custody battle of 2012. Elaine's divorce and custody lawyer Amber Harrison interviewed Dylan before he gave private testimony to then 6th Judicial District Judge David Dixon, who was the judge in the August and September 2012 custody hearing. Dylan wanted to live with his mom and Amber had advised him to be honest in conveying his views to the judge. And she went on to assure him that the judge was someone he could trust. Now, we know that Dylan told Amber that the pictures of his dad quote-unquote creeped him out and that he didn't want to be around his father, but we don't know if he actually told the judge. However, because neither Dylan nor Corey wanted to live with their father, the judge gave Elaine full custody of the boys while granting Mark visitation rights. And for a while, it worked out because Elaine, her boyfriend Mike, and the boys moved to a city near Colorado Springs, which is a six-hour drive from Durango, Colorado, where... Mark lived and where the family used to live. Corey turned 18 soon after the custody agreement, so that meant he no longer had to visit his dad by court order. It was up to his choice to decide to do it on his own if he wanted. And it would probably be a while before Corey visited his father again. You heard that right, again. It turns out that while the custody battle had been ongoing, 
Corey and his girlfriend did in fact visit Mark in Durango, Colorado toward the end of August 2012. While there, Corey and his girlfriend made a mess of Mark's place, leaving a large collection of empty liquor bottles for Mark to clean up after they'd left. Mark texted a photo, like most parents do, of the bottles to Corey, angry about the mess, to which Corey responded, quote, I've got some pictures too, and then sent the pictures of Mark in that red lacy bra with the human excrement on his face. He followed up with further angry texts to Mark, including, quote, Hey, beautiful, you are what you eat. Look in the mirror, unquote. If you're wondering how Mark responded to receiving those text messages from Corey, you're not alone. Because after I had heard that Corey sent his dad those mean-spirited texts, I went on a full-on dive. I wanted to know how Mark responded. It turns out that Mark accused Corey of violating his privacy, and he's not wrong there. They were on his personal computer. But secondly, he went on to say something truly chilling, given what we know now. He told Corey, quote, if you cared about Dylan, why did you want to see him hurt, right? Unfortunately, nobody knew about this argument until years after the fact. So Dylan was still forced to attend these court-ordered visitations with his father. While Mark rarely exercised his visitation rights with Dylan, the few times he did, nobody was happy. Visitation typically ended with Dylan and Mark arguing and at each other's throats. Months after Dylan's disappearance, Elaine attempted to explain why she believed Dylan and Mark had had a tough time together during these visits. According to Elaine, if Mark's mad at someone, it's his prerogative to get even with them. So Elaine truly believed that that's what Mark was doing, was getting back at Dylan for what had gone down between him and Elaine, you know, Dylan's mom and Mark's now ex-wife. With all that in mind, it's not a surprise that Dylan was dreading his upcoming Thanksgiving week visitation with Mark. Dylan did not want to go, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. He didn't want to go. He asked and asked his mom up until his flight if there was a way, any way, out of staying with his dad, especially given the fact that he'd be there on his own. Remember, Corey had recently turned 18 and was no longer court-ordered to visit his father. Elaine did her best, though, to find a solution by consulting with her divorce and custody lawyer, Amber Harrison. Elaine asked if there were any other options besides sending Dylan to stay with his father. Amber is quoted nine years after the fact, through tears, as saying, I told her she had to put Dylan on the plane or she would be charged with contempt of court, end quote. And she acknowledges that that's one decision she will have to live the rest of her life with. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away. Like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. That brings us to Sunday, November 18th, 2012. It's the day of Dylan's flight from Colorado Springs to Durango, Colorado. Interestingly, there had been a flight delay and Dylan actually told his mom, quote, maybe it's a sign I shouldn't go. But there was nothing to be done except make sure Dylan got on the flight and that's what she did. 
Dylan was an avid texter who was actually pretty funny. My favorite example of this is the fact that all of his texts were signed with, quote, B3, parenthesis, pimp face with a stash, unquote. He never gave an explanation as to why he had this on every single text message he sent, but I think it's a clear indication of his age, his personality, and his overall sense of humor. He was 13 after all. In a conversation his mom had with Nancy Grace, she refers to texting as Dylan's lifeline. And she goes on to say, if you wanted to get into contact with Dylan, that's how you did it. He only texted. Now that we have some idea of his texting habits, it's no surprise that he was in constant communication with several people throughout the flight. Among those were his mom, school friends, and a friend who lived locally in Durango, Colorado. His home is about nine miles from Mark's home. He wanted to spend the night at the friend's house as long as it was okay with the friend's family, his parents, and the friend agreed. That's where they left things off. When the flight landed in Durango, Dylan texted his mom, quote, I arrived with a sad face, unquote. And we know for a fact that Dylan arrived in Durango because authorities confirmed his arrival via security camera footage. They're not just taking his text for fact. Mark picked up Dylan from the airport and they discussed where to eat for dinner. Mark wanted to go to a sit-down restaurant and really chat and get to catch up with his son, but Dylan refused. He wanted McDonald's, something quick and easy and somewhere he didn't have to spend a lot of time with his dad. So that's what they did. After dinner, they went straight to Walmart to pick up a couple of essentials. There too, they're caught on security camera footage. So we know they were in fact there around 8 p.m. or so that evening. The father and son went straight to Mark's home and called it an evening. It turns out that Dylan would not be able to meet up with his friend that night. The following text exchange is one of the last few responses sent by Dylan ever. For context, he's chatting with the same friend he had previously asked to hang out with, the friend who lives about nine miles from Mark in Durango, Colorado. Without further ado, here it is. Dylan, can't come sorry, I'll hang tomorrow, friend. Okay, why? To which Dylan responds, IDK, which means I don't know. The friend then asks, did your dad say no? Dylan, yeah. The friend, oh, okay. Dylan, can I come over early, like 6.30 early tomorrow? The friend responds in affirmative, yeah. Dylan then says, you better let me in. The friend responds, I will. I'm going to be at my grandma's. Dylan says that he'll, quote, I'll call your ass all day if you don't, unquote. The friend says, okay. Then at 8.07, Dylan sends, will your grandma care or be up? The friend sends a minute later at 8.08, just come around to where the sliding door is, where that room is and knock on it and I will wake up. Then an hour and a half later at 9.27, the friend says, call me when you get here too. The following day at 6.46, that same friend texts Dylan, where are you? If you remember the text exchange from just a few moments ago, the two friends had agreed to meet at 6.30. But Dylan never showed up. There's more to that text conversation, but we're going to put a pin in it for now. According to Mark, Dylan was alive on the morning of Monday, November 19th, 2012. Mark attempted to wake Dylan, who was sleeping on the couch, to let him know that he'd be running errands. But Dylan's a typical teenager and really was irritated by his dad waking him up so early. So he let him know where he would be and left the house. A few hours later, around 11 a.m., he returned to an open door 
the TV on to Nickelodeon, and a bowl of cereal on the kitchen table. But Mark wasn't worried. Dylan's fishing rod, his backpack, and his phone were gone too, so he was under the assumption that Dylan had gone to meet up with some friends. With Dylan out of the house with friends and all of his errands done, Mark decided to take a nap because he figured he'd talk to his son later that day. But when he woke up late in the afternoon that same Monday, he still hadn't heard from Dylan. Mark texted his son but received no response. Little did he know that Dylan's friends had also texted him and received no response throughout the day. And so that conversation I had said we would put a pin in earlier, we're going to continue it here. At 10.08, that same friend texted Dylan, come to Nando's, but he would never receive a response from Dylan. Figuring he was busy with his dad, he wouldn't text Dylan back for another six hours. That is until 4.12 when he says, dude, your dad's looking for you. Again, the friend received no response from Dylan. Without any responses to his own text messages he sent his son and his friend's text messages, Mark decides to contact Elaine. But he doesn't call her. Instead, he texts. And in the text, he says, have you seen Dylan? To which Elaine responds, no, he's supposed to be with you. And that's where she leaves the conversation with her ex-husband. She knows that she cannot depend on him, at least according to her own words. Elaine is now in full mama bear protective mode and she contacts everyone she knows in Durango, friends, family, and even acquaintances, asking if they've seen Dylan, but nobody has. So she jumps in the car with her boyfriend, Mike, and her other son, Corey, and drives the six-hour drive between Colorado Springs and Durango, Colorado. When she arrives, Dylan still hasn't been found. It's around 1 a.m. when she makes it to the sheriff's department and makes a missing persons report. According to Elaine, Mark didn't help with any of these searches. In fact, as she searched with sheriffs around Mark's property around 1 a.m., Mark sat inside his own home with the lights off. The following day, Elaine dealt with investigators, but they wouldn't do much at first because they considered Dylan to be a runaway, saying that he didn't want to be with his father and as such, he would have left on his own accord. To which Elaine responded that wasn't the case. He would never do something like this, especially without telling her or even his brother, Corey. And if you're sitting at home screaming, check the GPS on his phone. If only it were that easy. It turns out that Dylan's phone was an older model and had no GPS capabilities. Elaine would later go on to say that she had been saving up to buy Dylan a new phone with GPS for Christmas. Elaine soon realized that arguing with investigators would do little for her cause. So she did something on her own. She organized community searches and that week, remember it's the week leading up to Thanksgiving, people throughout the community missed the holiday with their families to search for her missing son. However, there was one noticeably absent person, Mark. According to Elaine, Mark sat at home the entire time. He sat in his easy chair while strangers searched for his son on Thanksgiving Day. The family wasted no time. They utilized social media and set up a Facebook account that chronicled any and all updates in Dylan's case. They also raised $55,500 in rewards with the help of the surrounding Durango community. Not long after news of Dylan's disappearance made headlines in the mountain community, Mark's mail carrier came forward and stated on the record that she had seen Dylan that Monday morning, the 19th, walking along the road with a friend. Unfortunately, the sighting could not be corroborated. 
Several more chilly days passed. Remember, they're in the Colorado mountains and it's November when investigators came to terms with the fact that Dylan's mother must have been right. Her son hadn't run away. Or at the very least, if he had run away, he was now missing. Investigators joined the ongoing community searches combing through the nearby woods. None of the searches turned up anything. Even though investigators weren't able to ping Dylan's phone, remember, it didn't have GPS, it was an older model. They were able to access his phone records. And what they learned surprised them. Dylan's phone and iPod, which he used to text as well, were last used at 9.37 p.m. on Sunday, November 18th, 2012. If you remember, that's the same day he arrived in Durango. In fact, it was only a couple hours after he had gotten to Mark's house and several hours before what would have been his normal bedtime, at least according to his mom. This new knowledge had investigators doubting Mark's initial story. And it confirmed Elaine's suspicions that Mark had harmed their son. At least it confirmed it in her mind. Was it mother's intuition? Maybe. But Elaine also contributed her theory to the flimsy story Mark presented to her and authorities when Dylan disappeared. She flat out has said that Mark and Dylan had, quote, grown apart in recent years and that Mark, quote, didn't really know Dylan anymore or at least well enough to make a convincing lie about his own son. Red flags went up the moment she heard Mark say that Nickelodeon had been on the television when he returned from his errands that fateful Monday. According to Elaine, Dylan hadn't watched Nickelodeon in months because he had begun to exclusively watch MTV. He's 13, duh. Another point Elaine made was that Dylan didn't fish or even know how to thread his own line, so it wouldn't have made sense for him to take his fishing pole with him, like Mark had claimed. None of this looked good for Mark. Law enforcement executed several search warrants on Mark's home. In fact, forensic testing found traces of Dylan's blood in multiple locations of Mark's living room, including on the couch, the floor in front of the couch, the corner of the coffee table, on the floor beneath the rug, and on the love seat. DNA testing showed that Dylan was the source of the blood on the love seat, but he couldn't be eliminated as a contributor to the blood found on the couch, floor in front of the couch, the corner of the coffee table, and the blood found beneath the rug. Now retired Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent and expert in blood spatter analysis, Joe Clayton, said two areas in the living room of Mark's home concerned him. And that's because they indicated some cleaning might have occurred at the scene. But of course, Mark denied any involvement in Dylan's disappearance. His girlfriend at the time even came forward in his defense, explaining that Dylan had cut his finger and bled in the living room, but that had happened about a year before Dylan disappeared. However, Joe Clayton, remember he's the blood splatter analyst, said that that couldn't be the case. He went on to explain that if a small amount of blood had been found in one singular spot, then that could be the result of a single event like a cut on the finger. But the fact that there were a number of areas testing positive for blood in Mark's living room, including the top of the coffee table and the cushion of another couch, that indicated to Joe that there was movement in the living room during a bleeding event. Traces of blood weren't the only concerning findings either. A cadaver dog detected the recent presence of a corpse in the living room on the clothes that Mark wore the day that Dylan disappeared 
and in the bed of Mark's four-door white Dodge pickup truck. He then cut off communication with Elaine almost immediately. Elaine, Elaine's boyfriend Mike and her son Corey stayed in Durango for almost a month up until Christmas. And during that time, they lived in a family friend's garage in the middle of winter because Mark wouldn't allow them in the house. Even though Mark cut off communication with Elaine, he still kept in contact with his older son, Corey. And he made several appearances on local news stations. The following audio is ripped from one of those local news interviews that Mark gave. Listen closely to what he has to say. Dylan, my prayers are with you and I love you very much. He was the light of my life and he he meant everything to me. And I just want him home just like everybody else does. And and that's why, you know, we got to keep searching for him because somebody knows something. We got to find him and we need to know that he's okay. I I don't want the focus to be mainly on me. I want the focus to remain on Dylan because that's where, that's the most important thing right now. And, you know, the process of what's going on with the authorities and the people handling this is to search my home. You know, all they had to do was ask. I would have willingly let them come in and do it. You know, I've given them, I've cooperated with them in every way. Anything that they've asked me for, I've been willing to do. Anything that they've suggested that I do, whether it be sitting at the house waiting for the phones to ring or or Dylan to walk through the front door, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do. And that's what I want everybody to understand is that, you know, my focus is on Dylan and, and what's going on with him and, and trying to keep the investigation moving forward in, in whatever necessary means that that is. Quote, he was the light of my life and meant everything to me, unquote. Why is that statement in the past tense? I'll link the clip in the show notes if you have a chance, watch it. His words aren't the only thing that'll leave you questioning his involvement. Because at this time, we still don't know if Dylan has passed. We're under the impression that he's missing. So why would his father use past tense? Investigators did their due diligence, though. On top of searching Mark's property, they brought both of Dylan's parents into the station for polygraph tests. Now, us true crime consumers know that polygraph tests don't hold up in court. But some reason, investigators like to do them anyway. Meanwhile, Elaine, Mark, and their son, Corey, then appeared on a two-hour episode of the Dr. Phil show in the early part of 2013. And it's here that the public found out the results of those polygraph tests. Elaine passed with flying colors, which we could have assumed because she was six hours away in Colorado Springs. Mark, on the other hand, failed. Overall, the Dr. Phil episode was essentially two hours of Mark and Elaine pointing fingers at each other. The amount of gaslighting on Mark's part is astonishing. Dr. Phil remained impartial throughout, but he also offered Mark an opportunity to clear his name by facilitating another polygraph test. Mark agreed. The episode built up the moment, only for Mark to refuse at the last minute. As a result, the moment was anticlimactic, but The Dr. Phil episode wasn't without its usefulness. The episode revealed some additional information about Mark. If you remember at the top of the episode, I mentioned that Mark had been married to another woman named Betsy. Well, according to Betsy, Mark had had a history of physical abuse and had a violent temper. While those things don't make someone a murderer, it's not looking good for Mark. 
with all of the forensic evidence and the fact that Mark was the last person to see Dylan alive, I'm sure you're wondering how on earth they hadn't arrested him yet. Don't worry, me too. But they didn't have a body, or at least not yet. But that all changed in June 2013 when partial remains were found. A cadaver dog located Dylan's partial remains off Middle Mountain Road, which is an ATV trail about eight miles from Mark's home. But partial is the optimal word here. Investigators weren't able to determine the manner of death with just partial remains. Fortunately, that changed two years later in November 2015. That's when Dylan's skull was discovered by a pair of hikers about a mile and a half farther up the same road from where the rest of his remains were found. At this point, Mark had lawyered up and contended that Dylan was likely attacked by a bear or a mountain lion. Forensic anthropologist Diane France, who performed the examination, found that there was blunt force trauma to Dylan's skull, as well as a fracture above his left eye. These injuries indicated that they had to have been caused by another human and not an animal. That's because Dylan's skull had what appeared to be knife markings. Thus, the manner of death changed from inconclusive to homicide. Wildlife experts further supported these findings, stating that no animal inhabiting this area, whether that's bear, mountain lion, or anything else, would have transported a skull that far from the other remains. At this point, Mark's scrambling and releases another statement, suggesting that Dylan may have been kidnapped by a stranger. But that's when another piece of information comes out. Mark's first ex-wife, Betsy, had a shocking interview with authorities. It turns out that Mark had once told her that, quote, if he ever had to get rid of a body, he would leave it out in the mountains, unquote. Investigators then hired former FBI profiler Pete Klismet in 2015. They wanted him to review the evidence in Dylan's disappearance and murder, which he did for three long months. He dug and dug, and he said there was no doubt in his mind that Mark killed Dylan. In fact, he's quoted as saying it's, quote, an inescapable conclusion that it was Mark. Pete goes on to classify Mark as a narcissist and He went on to say that if Mark ever went to trial, Mark would never plead guilty. He went on to say that Mark is the type of person who's used to lying his way out of anything. Police in Bellingham, Washington, arrested Mark on suspicion of murder two years later in 2017. He had been working up there on a trucking route. He contested extradition to Colorado, but he lost and was then held on a $1 million bond. As I was researching this case, I was left with so many more questions. For example, why did it take nearly five years for Mark's arrest? And why did prosecutors pursue second-degree murder rather than first-degree murder? I don't have the answers to those questions, but I certainly can't be the only one asking them. The trial was initially set to begin in 2018, but it was met with delay after delay. Those delays included Mark's lawyer being arrested for domestic violence charges in 2019, along with multiple delays related to the coronavirus pandemic. However, after years of delays and two missed trials, the trial officially began on June 21st, 2021. Dozens took the witness stand during the trial, including members of the search and rescue team who 
looked for Dylan in those early days, animal behavioral experts who testified about bear hibernation, DNA analysts, and two of Mark's three living sons, Corey and Brandon, who testified against him. The friend whom Dylan planned to meet the morning he went missing also testified. He later said, quote, I think about him a lot. I hope I made him proud. We've covered all of the evidence against Mark at this point, but that still leaves the motive. What would have made a father murder his son? Well, prosecutors argued that Dylan confronted Mark about the scat photos that we talked so extensively about at the beginning of the episode, thus resulting in Mark flying into a fit of rage, killing Dylan. And after only six and a half hours of deliberations, a verdict was reached on July 16th, 2021. Mark showed zero emotion as the verdict of guilty of second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death was read out. He would be facing 16 to 48 years in prison. The sentencing would take place a few months later in October 2021, and prosecutors asked the court to sentence Mark to the full 48 years. District Attorney Christian Champagne is quoted as saying, quote, he stands before you refusing to accept responsibility, showing no remorse, reflecting that same cold-hearted murderous heart that killed Dylan Redwine. Your Honor, that's the ultimate aggravating factor that you should consider. And that alone will justify imposition of the maximum sentence in this case, 48 years for both counts. Judge Jeffrey Wilson agreed with the prosecutors and handed down the maximum penalty of 48 years. Judge Wilson said that the evidence against Mark is, quote, overwhelming, unquote. He went on to tell Mark, quote, I have trouble remembering a convicted criminal defendant that has shown such an utter lack of remorse for his criminal behavior. He continued, first of all, you killed your son, a 13-year-old boy. At 13, he's still a little boy. As the father, it's your obligation to protect your son, keep him from harm. Instead of that, you inflicted enough injury on him to kill him in your living room. After the passion of whatever caused you to act the way you did subsided, you didn't think about Dylan. You thought about yourself. You sanitized the crime scene, you hid Dylan's body, and you went so far as to remove his head from the rest of his body. The judge concluded that Mark needs to be removed from society for, quote, a long period of time, unquote. Mark declined to say anything in court, which is his right, but he did submit a statement that said the following, quote, Innocent of all charges, miscarriage of justice, fake conviction, sham trial. I take this circumstance very seriously and want to make clear that I too have lost a child I love more than life itself. I will fight for true justice, not for myself, but for Dylan. I have always shown remorse for the things that I'm guilty of. Stand against fake justice, unquote. Just one month after being sentenced, Mark's lawyers filed a notice of intent to appeal. The notice cites all the following on issues of appeal that may include, but are not limited to, the sentencing, sufficiency of evidence, and objection at trial. Dylan would have turned 23 this year. Who knows what he would have been able to accomplish in the almost 10 years since his murder. College, a significant other, children even. He had so much life left to do on this earth 
but his time was cut short. And while he's no longer with us, I want us to take a minute to remember the silly and funny 13-year-old boy who signed all of his texts with B3 pimp face with a stash. Whatever that means, it cracks me up and I want to remember him that way. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at themurderdiariespodcast.com and themurderdiariespod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye.